Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. another episode of the deep dive with Eyal Shai. I'm joined today by Paul Valencourt. Hi Paul. Hi. It's so good to have you here and without further ado I'd like you to introduce the concept or idea that you uh, find to be helping you live a better life or something that you've thought about a lot. Great. Um, the topic that we're going to talk about today is teaching and what it is to be a good teacher. This is something I'm really passionate about, and I've taught in a bunch of different arenas, and I just, I, I've thought a ton about it. Fantastic. So the first thing I'll be interested to hear about is, do you have this uh, almost mythical teacher from your childhood that's kind of a figure in your life that um, maybe even made you become a, a teacher down the road or is it coming from the family do you feel uh, there's inspiration in your youth somehow that's a great question I don't know that I had like a specific teacher I think sort of what really motivated me to become a teacher originally um, was that I like to share what I know I like to give back so like it just has always happened that I will find a subject that I'm interested in and for one reason or another, and then go down the rabbit hole on that subject and learn and learn and learn a ton about it because I'm super interested. And then it seems like as soon as I've sort of gotten to a certain point, someone will be like, hey, what do you know about X, Y, Z? And I'll be like, a ton. Let's talk about it. Like, <laughs> I can't wait to, because I feel like I've always um, learned so much by teaching other people or sharing what I know. And so it really helps me too. It's really invigorating for me as well to, to do that. That's fantastic. And so when you set out to really think uh, in, in terms of, of meta about teaching, uh, or maybe let's start at the beginning with your first experiences with teaching. Uh, how, how did it feel in terms of actually trying to impart knowledge um, to somebody else? Did you have a method to begin with? Do you come from a background of education or did it come intuitively to you? Well, a lot of the teaching I've done is not necessarily academic teaching. My very first, if, I, if I'm really being honest with myself and with you and with the people at home, my very first teaching job was I worked for a summer camp, like a county summer camp, and me and a couple of other performers would go around and we would perform at these different summer camps, a different camp every day, two camps a day, every day for the summer, right? And then at the end of our show, we would teach something. Some people taught some of the performers did dances, so they would teach a dance to the kids. Some people taught, um, you know, did something else. They would teach mine to the kids or whatever. And the thing that I knew how to do was, and that I did my performance piece, was juggling. So I, my first teaching job, really, was teaching kids how to juggle. And I didn't, I don't really have a background necessarily. My, my parents were not teachers, like, but I just really loved it. And I love to see the kids like get it, you know? And so 
with juggling, it's a little bit of trial and error and like demonstrating and then fine tuning their performance a little bit like, okay, it's got to be throw, throw, catch, catch. There's a certain cadence to it. Right. And so you're trying to explain this to kids who are like six to 16. And so you're kind of like trying a bunch of different, it was a really, it was one of those, <laughs> if you read, um, like outliers or something, it was like one of those experiences where I got a lot of experience really in a dense sort of thing. Cause it was like, I would do this strategy in the morning, this strategy in the afternoon. Next day, same thing. Ding, 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 ding. Five days a week for, you know, all the weeks of summer. So, you know, I got to try a bunch of different stuff and learn. I learned a ton about teaching from, from doing that. So that was really my first job. And, and that was, uh, you know, sometimes it's frustrating because you want to be like, no, just ah, it's let's throw, throw, catch, catch, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what what would be some of the first lessons that you actually went, uh, huh, interesting, like this work, this didn't in terms of um, in terms of the, yeah, the method or anything. Sure. Like I think some of the uh, like focusing out a little bit like meta teaching lessons, I think one of the lessons was really breaking it down piece by piece, you know, because sometimes like once you start juggling, it's like everything's happening at once, right? But you really need to sort of dial back sort of out of your own experience back to that time when you were a beginner in this. And like just the basic unit of, a, of juggling is a throw, throw and a catch, throw and a catch. And making that sort of consistent, right? Because if you're, if you're throwing catch or different every time, you're not going to be able to do it right? So just to kind of break it down to this, okay, this is the thing. That doesn't seem too overwhelming, right? And the kids can kind of get that. And then adding the next step and the next step and just finding out what are those increments that people or kids in this case could handle, could understand and master and build on. The older kids were really bored with one throw and catch. So you would do that for a shorter amount of time just to get them familiar with it. And then you're more quickly moved to two balls, throw, throw, catch, catch, you know? And um, so I think the, the idea of my, my academic background is in philosophy. So sort of the, the idea of the logic of like breaking it down into pieces and systematizing what those pieces are, that's, I think, something that's been a strength of mine as a teacher is to look at something and be able to sort of break it down into its sort of component parts that need to be communicated clearly so that people can master the, the skill, whatever it is. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I like how you took it into the direction of... Um challenging people also challenging it's important to keep some sort of tension with uh, curiosity i guess when you say yeah. that the older kids needed to be challenged uh maybe pushed to the edge in some way um more is that something that you found that helps uh, engage people and then uh keep them there basically yeah totally there's this guy named stephen kotler who's written a lot about flow state and this is um something obviously I'm interested in. So I've read different books about it, but, it, but he talks about, there's like this um, sort of ideal amount of challenge. Like if it's too simple, you get bored. If it's too hard, you get frustrated. There's like this real sort of great zone in the middle where it challenges you just the right amount. And so you're learning, you're excited, you're engaged. You sort of, you sort of lock into that higher state and you're, you're challenging yourself, but learning and getting satisfaction about it all at the same time. So as a teacher, I think that um, that I try to really, I think one of the things of being a teacher is 
is really trying to encounter each student where they are along the path, you know, and some students may be at step six, some students may be at step three, but as a teacher, you need to, uh, for me, at least, I need to look at them and say, where are they? And how do I, you know, uh, challenge each student appropriately? Yeah. Yeah. That's something I encounter. So I'm in the business of uh, doing dialectic and basically um, teaching people a specific art of how to create a model of the world by organizing our concepts and refining them. And yeah, it is fascinating how um, idiosyncratic each each and every one of us is and how you have to um, to make things bespoke to fit the individual. And it's really quite interesting because at a, as a teacher, I think you always should be in a position where you could be surprised by the person who you encounter and you have to keep an open mind. And sometimes you find people who think differently about things or have different motivations or yeah, just come primed with very interesting ideas and you'll be stumped at least temporarily. And that is somehow that I feel like teachers are not encouraged to be uh, usually. And right. yet I felt that I have to embrace this. And even if it means that I'm as a teacher, I'm actually there thinking about something for a good 10, 20 seconds, because I'm not sure what to say and, and what to find. Um, yeah. So uh, you're an improv teacher today, not a juggling teacher. And <laughs> Um, I'm interested specifically now that you've mentioned flow in 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 that in in what I just said and also what you mentioned about flow. Like, how do you go about getting people loose enough but not tense enough? That's great. Yeah, improv is is what I've taught the most for sure. So I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, I think sort of I, I really think a ton when I'm teaching improv about Picasso's three rules of art, right? Which are, you got to learn all the rules, practice it until you can do it perfectly by the rules, and then forget all the rules, right? I love working with beginners because we're working on those first two parts, those first two parts. And I feel like if I do my job right, then they'll do the third part by themselves, right? My job as a teacher is to partly make myself obsolete in their world, right? Here, I've there's some, some teachers that or some coaches like in improv, they work with the same team year after year after year. And that's never been my thing. I don't feel like that's how I do it. I'll work with a team for like six months and then release them out into the world. They can go get another teacher. And then sometimes we reconnect later and I have new lessons to teach them based on what where they're at, mm. you know, because I have different goals for them now because they're doing something different. So like, oh, great. Well, now I think what, what I'd love to see you guys do is this and this, right? But I love, I love working with beginners because they come in, like I said, at all different levels, all different experiences. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to, one student I had was like, oh, I, I'm a computer programmer during the day. I work from home. I don't get to interact with people that much. So I'm just doing this for fun. And then also, since I'm in LA, a lot of people I see are actors. I want to do this professionally. I want to get on SNL or whatever, you know? So it's like, it's a bunch of different people with a bunch of different motivations, with a bunch of different skill levels. I've taken 20 acting classes. I've never taken an acting class. So you're trying to find a way to, you know, sort of reach each of those people individually. You know, and so, um, yeah, there's certain lessons that I'm trying to teach, but it's like how, 
how strict do I want to be with each student? If you've never taken an acting class, well, then maybe we'll, if you get like the basics of that, then that's a success for you. If you've taken a bunch of acting classes, then maybe I want you to do a little bit more, go a little bit deeper on it, right? And so you try to challenge each person sort of really individually. Does that answer your yeah. question? I forgot where we started. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. I'm also interested in um, what would be, um, so let's, if, if we focus on improv, what would be some of these simple steps like um, throw, right. throw, catch, catch? What would that be? Right. I think uh, like the, the, the way that I teach, uh, I, I teach a, a, a theory or a way of doing it called the triangle of the scene. That is that in the scene, there's three elements that are happening. That is the game or what you're doing. And then my game, what I'm doing, and then kind of where we're doing it or what we're doing it about. So, so that would mean like, like you are, um, you are really egotistical and I'm really, um, you know, uh, I have a problem with authority or whatever. Right. So that's, so then that's your character and that's my character. And then we're, you know, we work together at a sandwich shop or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the basic things I try to get students to do is, is to name that thing about their partner, give that big playable gift about their partner, right? That's one of the basic things that we're trying to do. And then sort of hand in hand with that is once you get that big playable gift, try to do something with it, try to show it in some way, right? So these are sort of these building block skills, listening to your partner. Yes. And is the most basic piece of improv right so these different kinds of things are what we're really working on in the beginning yeah fantastic i'm also interested in uh, in knowing like what is improv so first first you when you were a student of improv uh, yeah. what did you feel that because i'm trying to now kind of tie this to the theme of the podcast which is living well so in yeah. terms of of giving you um something that knew that you obviously got very passionate about and you're still doing many years later. Um, what do you feel that, that this is giving you this, uh, this gift of, of engaging in, in doing um, acting or, or more specifically improv acting? Yeah. Well, I can, I can tell you sort of like by way of my origin story, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was in college, my, as a freshman in college, very, like my first semester in college, I had uh, a new friend, you make new friends in college when you get there, and his name was Thomas. And he's like, hey, I'm doing this improv show. Do you want to come and check it out? And I was like, I'd never seen an improv show, but you know how you are in college. Like, yeah, sure, I'll go do that. So, so I went to check it out. And part of the show was short form improv, sort of like whose line. And part of it was long form, which is more of a long narrative, sort of like based on a single suggestion. It's like 20 or 30 minutes or 45 minutes of a, this spontaneous story, right? Part of the story was this guy was trying to find out who made Muzak. You know, that music you, that you hear like in grocery stores or in stores. Okay. It's like really bland. Who makes this is what his quest was, right? <laughs> and so he's like questing, questing, questing. And then finally he... um He's like, I'm going in there. And these two people jumped out to be guards. They're like, no, you're not. He's like, yes, I am. And he pushes past them. And he goes in. And some other people were in this room. This all improvised, obviously. And then he, this guy is like, you? You make music? Paul McCartney and Paul Simon and John Lennon? And then the guy who was Paul McCartney said, right, mate. We usually make the music first and jazz it up for everyone else. And I was like, it's like, totally blew my mind. I was like, what in the world? But it was like, I can't tell you what a clear moment that was for me. So clear, a moment of clarity where I was like, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It was like super clear. It was like being called to what people say, like calling to the priesthood. Like it just spoke to me. And I was like, I, I got to get in on that. And 
And so tying back to the big overarching theme of the of the of the podcast, for me, that has been like my approach to it, it, improv has been sort of like in some ways like my religion because it, it, it influences how I interact with the world. When I'm doing improv, I feel like I'm really at my highest self. I feel energized. I feel engaged and focused and I'm working off the top of my intelligence. I'm using everything I got, every book I've ever read, every conversation I've ever had, every movie I've ever seen. Everything's like coming out. That's all source material, right? You're using every bit of yourself engaged in this task for this moment, right? That's really flow state. You're using everything that you've got in this thing. And those, those sort of magical sort of times of doing improv are just in the sort of the Greek sense, ecstatic, right? Where you're like touching this sort of divine power you feel like, you know? Right. And that's, it's, it's been great. And that's the thing I think that, and, and as a consequence of that, it, it had such a profound effect on me. And I'm not saying that that's for everyone necessarily, but had such a profound effect on me that that's kind of how I went on to live my life really in a lot of ways. Like I worked in television for a while and people would say, can you do that? And I'd be like, yeah. Yes. And let's figure that out, you know, or do that. <laughs> or, or I love collaborating with people. And, and one of the things, one of the philosophies of improv or the style of improv that I do is, is make your partner look good, make your partner look good. So again, when I'm working in TV and I'm talking to an executive about an episode that we're working on or whatever, and they say, oh, that episode was so fun and blah, blah, blah. I say, well, you really need to talk to, to Mary or to Dave, the editors, because they really did an awesome job. So share that credit around. Why not? There's credit for everybody. We can do that. You know, make your partner look good. They're going to love it. You're going to love it. Everything's going to be better because of it, you know? So I feel like that, that, the, those sort of like core tenets and that core philosophy of improv is the thing that really uh, touched me and inspired me. And that's kind of why I fell so in love with it and why I'm still doing it probably much longer than I should have. <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely amazing. And you're putting a huge smile on my face. I'm sold um, on pretty much, I'll subscribe to anything you just said about, you know, operating from a mindset of abundance, whether yeah. it's, it's credit of ideas of, of all that. Now, uh, I do want to ask, so with that uh, final scene in the, in the first improv uh, yeah. So you were a spectator, or you were already? Yeah, yeah. I was no, I was in the audience. I was so, in the audience. Uh, so, uh, what was it? What was it about it that really like? Could you analyze? Because I'm super interested. Was it? Yeah, the, I think the that surprise, moment. The I think that moment was like I had seen. I saw them get the suggestion, which at this moment I honestly don't even remember now. But I saw them get the suggestion. I saw them work and develop it, and I saw this whole thing spontaneously. These people working together, feeding off of each other, and just like these ideas, bang, bang, bang. And then the, like the the surprise culmination of it, the eruption of that volcano, was just like, oh my god! I saw the whole thing happen, and there it was, and that crazy idea came out of out of nowhere. And oh my gosh, it was just I think it was just like this whole like rolling tide, like this. Um, sometimes it's how we describe like doing the, the opening of an improv where we sort of like get the suggestions and sort of start rolling is like you throw a pebble into the, into the ocean and then a little ripple starts and it grows and grows and grows as it comes. And it's like this giant tidal wave mm. crashing onto the beach. Right. And that was me. I was on the beach and it crashed right over me. And I was just like, Whoa, like I couldn't, it was just like so surprising. And so like, I saw it all happen and it just was just like this release of like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Like that's uh, I think that's, that's what it was. Cause I was, had always been a fan of comedy and stuff, but this thing that was just like so simple, it was just some people and some chairs and 
just figuring it out on the fly was really, oh my God, so provocative to me. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, thanks. That I think that makes perfect sense. Like for me, you know, I've it's just been two years since COVID hit and I kind of went on this uh, new phase of my being of just trying to be a, a creative and doing things and pushing forward and not being shy about whatever knowledge I had accumulated for, for um, in years of reading books and really trying to give back something and not just being hard on myself and saying, you know, that doesn't matter. There's millions of voices already out there and all that. And I've felt it forever, right? Since I was little that I wanted to be in a position of somebody who is expressing themselves, right? And I didn't, yeah. I, it took me a long while and a crazy kind of, um, shock to the whole world where I just didn't have a job so I could go for it. But, you know, it, it's not even a hundred percent my decision. It was first this kind of moment. Uh, and, and then it was easy to have this revelation that now I should do that. Um, but you're actually trying to, to meet people and, uh, do, do all students know that if they're going to improv, they're, they're aiming for that flow state or are they sometimes, um, not even sure what's going to happen. It's interesting. I'm, I, I want to backtrack for one second <clears throat> on something you were saying about how there was like this big sort of change in the world and that precipitated your sort of engagement in this podcasting world. In improv, we have this, this idea of improv is the intersection of discovery and decision. You find out some new information and you decide what to do about it. And on, an, on the macro level, that's what happened to you. This new discovery of, oh, COVID, we're all in lockdown. So then you decide what to do. And then that's your new vector. You head off in that direction with that intention, right? Um, so I'm sorry, ask your question again. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, asking if, if most students, when they come oh. at first, do they do they know what's going to, to happen to them? Do they come with the intention to kind of loosen up and and be more in the flow state and let some stuff out i think it's a really for me it's been a sort of a mixed bag of of motivations some people come like they're like oh i'm a i'm a writer and i just want to be sort of looser you know I'm, i overthink stuff that's one motivation some people are like oh i i am an actor and i want to be on sitcoms so i want to be funnier I want to be funny is what they say, right? Or I'm, you know, I'm there, I'm a computer programmer. I just want to meet people and interact with people, right? But most people, oh, that's all their different motivations. In terms of point of reference, I think most people have at least, before they come to class, have at least seen an improv show, right? So they kind of like know, oh, oh, wow, it just looks so fun and easy. And you say this and you get laughs and it's this and that and whatever. And it just all looks so, so simple, right? And so, and so fun and so loose. They kind of have a sense of like what it looks like and what it ultimately can be, right? Um, so I think, I think it's, it's a combination of their expectation of what they, or their want, what they want out of it versus their point of reference, what they've seen it can be. And they, those two things sort of play off each other and person by person, you know, that combination is different. Oh, I want to be looser. I see these people being loose. That's, that's why I'm here. That's what I want to do. That's how I'm heading for it. I want to be funnier. I see these people be funny. So I'm going to come mm. at it from that angle, right? So they have different, different priorities of what they're trying to get out of it. And I, as I said, it's sort of like a calling to the priesthood. So I have a very pure vision of what I think it is. And so I try to sort of share what I know 
and help each person. I think this is what I think really great teachers do. And that's why I was aspired to is I think I'm trying to um, share what I know and help people achieve what they want to achieve, you know, and that's individual. It's not everyone has the same goals or the same ruler that they should be measured against, you know, because each person is different. Yeah. Yeah. That that's great. Um, in terms of, yeah. So to go back a little bit to the, to the notion that, you know, uh, you said, uh, what was it? The decision, uh, and yes, yeah, it's the intersection of discovery and decision, discovery and decision. Yeah. So very obviously, you know, in that sense, uh, life is, is a continuous improv show, right? We say that so, all the time. Yeah. So in terms, in terms of, of skill transfer, it's very easy to see how you would uh, take the skills that you learn in improv and um, the, the level of, of comfort that you have now with uncertainty, because that's what it is, and transfer it into life, which I think a lot of us are, are not very comfortable with uncertainty. Um, so, yeah, what are some ways for, for people in general to start warming up to the idea of even encountering something that's uncertain and not freaking out. Right. I think one thing is, um, well, I, I think the one thing that people can do <laughs> just to try it out in their own life is, is very simple. Because I, I think partly it's the techniques of improv and partly it's also the values of improv. What do we value in improv? In improv, I really value my partner right? I want to make them look good. They're the only other real thing on stage and we're working together to make this scene happen, right? So I value them, right? Maybe more than we do in day-to-day -day life, right? Because we're, we have our different, on stage, we only have this one goal, survive this scene, hopefully make it entertaining or fun or interesting or something. In life, we have a million different goals we're pursuing all the time, right? But I think one thing that we can try as an exercise is when you're talking with someone, really listen to them all the way to the end of what they're saying and then think about what you're going to say, right? It's a tiny shift, but a lot of times when someone's talking, you're thinking, you're not listening, you're thinking about what you're going to say, right? So just as an exercise, people could, could try, when I'm talking to someone, I'm going to let them say a whole sentence all the way to the end, and then I'm going to count one, two, three, and then I'm going to say, and I'm not going to think about what I'm going to say until they're done talking. And one way you can sort of really pragmatically, this is where I get sort of really pragmatic about it, is try to say something about what they just said. And that'll keep you focused on them, right? So if it's like you and I, and we're talking, you're like, oh man, I really, I really love pizza. Ah. And then I think, I love pizza too. My favorite pizza is pepperoni pizza with pineapple. Oh my gosh, pineapple. That, that reminds me when I was in Hawaii, I had the best pineapple. Oh my God. Yeah, Hawaii, that sounds really fun. Like a really great vacation, right? And so now I'm saying something about what you're saying. I'm really listening to you. I'm really attending to you in a way that a lot of times people don't, right? And I'm adding to the conversation. I'm keeping it going just by saying something about what they just said. That simple idea, I think is transformative. To, yeah. to conversations. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I remember the time in my life when things started more falling into place in terms of my thinking. And I've been doing dialectic with my dialectic teacher. And I remember going out into the world and um, I don't know what exactly made it happen, but there was a shift. And I just naturally started doing what you're just saying. We're actually listening to people, which is not, not a trivial thing, right? And 
things felt uh, different immediately in terms of in terms of your ability to um, to actually flow to actually flow. There's something so uh, so uh, yeah. You're completely stuck if you're in, in there in front of a person and you already know uh, what you're going to say. And it's usually something that's going to soothe you for a moment because you don't want to be triggered by something they said or something like that. So you either go to something that's already safe for you, you've said it before, or it's something that asserts um, the whatever your image of yourself is, it kind of asserts it to the, to the outside and... I think a lot, a lot of it is that. So, yeah, w- what is the role of of identity in in all of that? Or do people usually also have a, a hard time giving up on identity? Because I look at actors, and to me, that's that's a really hard thing to do. That's a really hard job, um, because you find out that you can literally be somebody else for at least some time, right? So yeah. what about that? Like now it makes me think of, of attachment to our own identity and image. Um, how is it, it is for the usual person to, to let go of and what kind of transformation we can make to, to make it more easy for us not to be attached to whatever is in our mind? Yeah, I think that's a that's a bunch of really great ideas. Let's let's see what we can handle. Yeah, I said so that. I think <laughs> that's right. I think first, in terms of identity, I think this this is a really interesting idea, especially in improv. I find this to be really fascinating. Where when I I had started teaching in Chicago, where I learned really really learned improv, and um, and then when I moved to LA, I found there was a difference in the students. Where students would, when you're an actor, you sort of go out for types. Like maybe you're a young dad. Right. You're, that's your age. That's your look. You kind of look like a young guy. If you had maybe like a mohawk and like all these piercings, then you would go out for punk roles. Right. You, they wouldn't necessarily send you out for young dad roles or whatever. Right. So people in LA were very conscious of their type. And so in scenes, they would always play their same type. Uh, they're, you're a young mom in every scene. You're a, you know, you're sort of an ingenue in every scene or whatever. And then it's just like trying to get people. So then I was like thinking, well, in improv, we're sort of like blank slates. We need to play kind of whatever needs to be played, right? If you need to be a cop, then then maybe you are a young woman cop, or maybe as a young woman, you need to play the old grizzled cop, or maybe as a, as a grown man, you need to play the baby or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But you need to kind of release your type, let go of that, and just and just be a servant of the story or a servant of the moment. Right. And so that was an interesting transformation for me as a teacher, trying to sort of get people to do that, you know, because that was like because people were just like, well, I'm, you know, I'm 25 to 35. So I'm a young dad. I'll just play that in every scene. You're like, OK, well, that's that's cool, man. You got that. Like, what else? What else do you got? And and the thing that's really interesting about that, and this may be interesting to you, is that when I play those other roles that are not my type, then I learn something about that. Right. And I learned how yeah. when I go, if I'm, if I, let's say I'm not young now, but at the time, let's say I was a young dad and I was playing a scene with a young mom. Okay. That's, that's my type, but let's flip it. I'm a young dad, but I'm playing the young mom. So I know as the young mom, what I really wanted from my partner was X, Y, or Z. What really would have helped me play this part better is X, Y, or Z. I felt really 
sort of stymied or, or, or um, sort of restricted by X, Y, or Z. So then when I go back, I've sort of walked a mile in someone else's shoes. So when I go back to playing my, my type or whatever, or I play with someone who's now that, I'm like, oh, I could serve them better in that role because I know that I wanted X, Y, and Z, right? And so now I have a new perspective, a more sort of global um, perspective on what's happening. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. And it really, I can only imagine because I haven't tried acting myself, but in a very real sense, you must feel um, like you understand other people better, like you're able to empathize and put yourself in their shoes more easily. I think so. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that actors in general and maybe improvisers in specific sort of get to learn is like how to you know, because we're sort of on the fly, we don't have a ton of time to like prepare the role or whatever, like uh, like a regular actor would. So we need to like key in. What are those emotional sort of? And this speaks to another part of what you said. What are those emotional commonalities between me and a young mom? What what is it about her situation that I can identify with? What do I what what do I sort of recognize in a grizzled old cop to me? You know what I'm saying? And then I can like, oh, let's follow, let's dig deeper on that for a second, you know? And so I follow that specific part of my personality or that specific part of my mm -hmm. history and make that like, instead of being in the background, now it's in the foreground, right? And so I get a deeper understanding of that about myself and also about that other thing about that person, you know? Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So in terms, like, I think we, we went on this uh, kind of, Side note. Side but, note, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms, of, like, I want to go back a little bit to, to whatever, like, as a teacher, uh, what do you do to get somebody to be um, more comfortable with, uh, with, the, with uncertainty, like preparing right, them right. Yeah, for, for being on the spot? Yeah. I think in, in the classroom, for example, I think that I try to uh, set the, the stage or the environment that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to be whatever that we're not, there's, this is a non-judgment zone. I'm going to sort of look at you and your work, not like you're bad or good, right? Bad or good is like, I don't know if you know this idea of slave mentality and master mentality, right? This uh, good and bad is a, is a slave mentality because you're against some pressure telling you that's good that's bad mm -hmm. right and or sorry that's uh, right or wrong right or wrong is is like the slave mentality and good or bad is like the master mentality like what works what works for you right so so what i'm trying to get students to key into is what works for them what works for them right because that's it because when the as i tell my students all the time when the chips are down and you're on stage and you need to make something happen you're going to go to the thing that works for you Right. So we're going to try to identify those tools and develop those tools within you. Right. And part of that, like you're saying, to help people be comfortable with the risk is to set that environment where like, look, it's OK. It's OK to it's OK to fail. It's OK to do something and be like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so lost or whatever. You know, what I'm saying that's OK. That's that's part of it. That's some of the most interesting scenes and stuff that I see in classes when people are totally lost. and They're just there's like, well, I'll just try this. I'll just try this. Right. And that's fine. That's, that's the, that's the thing that I always try to encourage people is just try it, just try something, just see where it goes. And maybe that works. Oh yeah. Great. That's yeah. Let's keep that in your tool belt. You can use that again in the future or, <coughs> or maybe it doesn't work and we'll say like, well, okay, great. So, so, 
and that one you sort of missed your partner. So maybe next time think about like trying to head more towards your partner so you guys can connect more. Oh, okay. Okay. I see that. I see that. Right. But I feel like they've got to have that freedom to succeed and fail and struggle and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I try to set the, try to approach that in a non-judgmental way. Right. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, yeah, you, you, you'd build a sandbox basically for, for people to, to play in where it's safe to fall and, and you don't get hurt. Yeah. So uh, since we already established that, you know, a lot of this carries into life, uh, what do you think, which do you think is the um, default for, for us as children? Like, is it, are we, are we wired this way initially? And it's just the, the, adventurous uh, aspect of us is is somehow uh, beat out of us beaten out of us or is it are we are we cautious so i'm sure there are different types but are we fundamentally cautious or adventurous and that gets somehow beaten out of us because most of us uh in effect are not comfortable with uncertainty and then maybe we even have to go to improv to to learn that relearn that uh what do you sure i think that there's a couple different things in there like one is the i'll say the last thing that you said was um i think that we the more that we succeed in uncertain situations the more confidence we get to deal with uncertainty right? So in level one class, I see people come in and they're struggling, struggling, struggling. And then maybe they have this one scene that really catches on. And then their, their learning curve changes, right? Mm -hmm. They just go from like, oh, oh, hold it. Oh, that's it. That's like a sort of orientation within them that they can always navigate back towards that feeling, you know, like, oh, that one scene I did was really great. What did I do there? Well, how can I, you know, whatever. And it sort of helps them sort of orient back towards that feeling. So I think in, you know, in life, the how improv relates to life is we're sort of in the safe environment, taking these chances, getting more comfortable with uncertainty. And then we take that confidence out into the world right? With us a little bit, you know, and obviously the bigger, the, the bigger, the uncertainty, the more sort of experience you would want ahead of time or whatever, but you sort of make the, make the best of it. I think one of the things that improv teaches that I really love about it, that I think is helpful to people is a bias towards action, a bias towards action, right? Is that when you're, when you're at a crossroads, like, should we talk about it or should we do it? In improv, we should do it. <laughs> right. Let's get, let's get down to it. Right. And so I think that sort of, that's a skill that people can really use. I think in their real everyday lives is well, I'll try something. I'll do something like you're a perfect example. You were a tour guide and your industry shut down because of COVID and you could have sat back and just be like, well, I'll just wait for that known thing to open back up or I'll try this thing, podcasting. And, and then you liked it and you kept doing it. You could have tried it and said, I don't really like that. I'll try baking bread i'll that try. was writing that was writing a book for me that's how i started i first started writing a book and i was like there's no people in the room here what am i doing you know right but you learn that thing you you knew like, okay this is i mean you know thomas edison's a famous example he did like ten thousand different materials to end up to you know to make the light bulb and he just kept trying 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 he knew that it could work and he just like tried this oh that's not it and they said well you you failed you know, all these times, like, no, I just figured out 999, you know, 9,999 ways to not make a light bulb, you know, but you try it. 
And you did that too. You're like, oh, here, I'm trying different ways to deal with the pandemic. Writing a book? No, that's not, that's not really for me. Okay, great. Now I'll try this. But you don't know that until you try it. Yeah. And I just wish that was a more uh, prevalent approach in, in, in formal education as we have it, because I think yeah. that um, it, it very much goes against this, this notion. You know, it's uh, right. basically just from the very beginning, even to have children sitting in classes on chairs and not having a lot of, uh, you know, even, even using their body and kind of moving around in space, that's even right. taken away. That, that probably uh, hurts creativity in a, in a major way. Um, and I think that goes back to what, what you were saying before. Do we start off creative or artistic or free or something, and then lose that over time. And the educational system, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that for sure, but it seems like, yeah, because you're dealing with so many students, it's hard for a teacher year after year, class after class to, to encounter each student where they are. That's the, but that's, that's what we ideally we've sort of established or we sort of theorized that that's sort of the ideal, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with like all these students, you're just trying to sort of like get to the, to the most you can get to at once, right? Maybe 80% of those students are all, you know, ready for mainstream education. And they're just like, that's how they, that's fine to them. They can learn that way or whatever. But there's 20% that, like you said, would love to get up and run around and learn by running around. And like, you know, I need a math problem broken down into like how far I can run or whatever, whatever sort of like, whatever way inspires them, you know? And so I think that's, that's part of it is you're trying to sort of homogenize or sort of like mass produce, you know, graduates. Um, and that's, I think as a consequence of that, it gets sort of like, if you start off like a wide band of people and then you sort of like keep crushing it towards the middle. Yeah. You know, you're going to, you sort of like, you learn to adapt. I think sometimes people learn to adapt to that and, and release this thing. And there's also the idea of practicality, you know, and, you know, like, well, is that, I'll tell you a perfect example. When I was in college, right, I was working one summer in the reference desk of the library, right? I'm working at the reference desk of the library. And, um, and so we're just like shelving books, like super simple, peaceful work. It was not, it was air conditioned. It was actually not so bad of a job, really. But I work at the reference desk. And one day, all the books were shelved. And I'm standing there next to a librarian. And this is his job, right? He's a professional librarian great and he says so uh so what do you want to do when you get out of college and I was like oh I want to go into I want to go into tv and movies and he's like that's not very realistic is it and I was like why well, we'll see I guess you know <laughs> and then now I'm in tv and he's uh, still a librarian I guess you know so it's like it, it, this idea of what's practical what's realistic is is important but it's also not the be-all end-all of everything you know, there's the old saying that sort of a hippie saying, like, don't trust anyone over 30. And I get it. Like when you get to be over 30, I'm over 30, as you can tell, but you, you're, you have more practical wants. You're like, I just want a roof over my head and a soft chair and like good meals and stability or whatever. I'm getting older, you know, but when you're young, you're leading up to, you want to, I'll do this and that. I'll get in a van. I'll travel around with my friends. We'll try this. We'll try that. Da, 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 right. And so and so I think it's this practicality or this sort of, you know, nothing's realistic, really. Any great thing is not realistic, but you got to try, you know? Yeah. And, 
Yeah, and and this this connects this links back to what you said about um, somebody succeeding for for maybe the first time doing something, and and it's not even the product of a, of a conscious effort toward that thing, but some things may just click together to create the success, which then we can reflect back on and see what we did. And that's very interesting because I've had this notion that in sports as well, in any type of performance, um, you know, once you've unlocked a, a new level that you know you can deal with or, or a new level of achievement, then it's very easily reproducible for you. Um, mm -hmm. And now you were just talking about something that is somehow adjacent. I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is, but there is a relationship in kind of uh, belief in yourself that you can do it, even though that you haven't done it, because obviously this is the first time you're going to be um, attempting to, to go on television or something like that. And it's also because... Um, a life is not about these quantifiable things, you know, it's, you can be on television in, in very different ways. Like you can be on the number one hit show, or you can be on, on something lower on the charts and it's unclear. Or you can be on the news for some, <laughs> some terrible reason. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's easy to get on TV. It's just like, what oh, circumstance? yeah. What do we want to do? What do we want people to think of us? Yeah. So, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I want to ask you if you've noticed that people who have kind of struck gold once are able to then, it's just the self-belief maybe that is then reinforced that allows them to, to reach the same height again in the future. I, yes. The short answer is yes. Because they, then they know they can do it. Right. Here's a perfect example. Um, I, I, I love this uh, story of this guy named Steve Prefontaine, right, who is a runner. Right. And they were and sort of around that time, there was like it, everyone was saying that you couldn't break the four minute mile. No one could run a four minute mile. It's impossible. Your heart would explode. Your knees would crumble to dust or whatever. <laughs> just couldn't do it. But then you know what? Somebody did it. And then you know what? Somebody else did it and somebody else did it and somebody else did it. But it yeah. took that first person doing it to make it something that's possible. And then once it was possible, then it opened up the whole game, right? It, the whole game. And this happens all the time. This happens in like all kinds of sporting things. Like no one can lift this amount of weight. And then one person does it. And suddenly right after them in really quick succession, a bunch of people can do it. Those people were training just as hard before, but they just didn't think it was possible. And then all of a sudden it was. Right. So, so is that, is that the type of person that you as a teacher get to see from time to time, the type of person who, who does believe for no, for no obvious logical reason, they just have this strong belief in themselves and their capabilities of um, reaching new heights, either, you know, personally new heights for them or new heights on a um, whatever societal scale. Um, I don't know. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I mean, so sometimes those I deal with those people for sure, um, or I have those people in my class. Deal with them doesn't sound right. <laughs> but I have them in class or whatever. But I think most of the time, it's like for me, it's much more workaday than that. Like for me, it's it's much much more often getting that person to believe in themselves and that they can do it. 
And then once they've done it once, then they believe they can do it again. Right. Yeah. Because you have to sort of like part of the part of a level one improv class, to be perfectly honest, is releasing what you think, you know, you got to release what you think, you know, and then try this on for size. I'm going to share you share with you an idea or a theory or an exercise. Try this on for size. Right. And then learn from there. But people need to, you know, there's an old story about a a guy from the West who goes to the East to learn about Zen and he meets with the Zen teacher and they have like, they have tea and he's like telling this guy, Oh, here's what I know about Zen. I'm thinking about this and that, whatever. And the teacher like keeps pouring tea into the cup until it overflows. He's like, what are you doing? And the teacher says, you got to empty your cup if I'm going to fill it. Right. And this is what I, what sometimes, especially actors have a lot of experience kind of in this realm Mm -hmm. and they come in and they got to let go of what they know to learn what they can learn. You know, and when sometimes people who have no acting experience are easier to teach because they're like, they don't have any ego in it. Right. Someone's like, I've taken 20 acting classes. I should be good at this right away. They say to themselves. Right. But that person who's computer programmer is like, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see what happens. And they just come in and they're really open to advice and suggestions and shaping. And it's very easy to, for them to like release their ego because they don't have an ego in this area maybe if i tried to teach them about computer programming it would be a totally different game because they have some ego in that area right so part of it's like sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier it's making that safe space where people can feel okay to let go of their ego where people can feel okay to let go of these this armor that we wear on a daily basis and just encounter it be a beginner again you know when i came to, to to this place io where i learned really a ton of improv, I'd already been doing a ton of improv, right? And so I I had that challenge. I had to let go of what I knew and become a beginner again. And that was a great journey for me. That's where I learned the most when I was able to do that. Yeah. And I think that again transfers to life very easily. I mean, oh, yeah. it's 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 so interesting to see the whole uh, dynamic between uh, people who say they are teachers of of living well in the sense that, um, you know, coming under them and doing as they say will get you somewhere and they are the experts. Um, once you, I think, once you gain some wisdom about what it means to, to do and to fail and to always be a beginner in a sense, uh, you, you also know that you're always humble, right? And that kind of um, sets off an alarm when you meet somebody who's coming to you and is so confident in, in what they're doing as uh, now I'm talking in the realm of life, right? It was like, if you just subscribe to what I'm saying, you're going to be uh, doing great, whatever in some, in some sense. And in that sense, it seems that, you know, the, the best teachers are, are humble rather than uh, people who wish to take up a lot of space with their ego and, and something like that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. And I was just talking with someone the other day about about teaching philosophy and stuff. And you know, I've some improv teachers in particular. I'll speak about that since that's what I know the most about. Some improv teachers just want to make like little versions of themselves, and all their students come out of their class improvising how they improvise. And you're like, oh, you just came out of X Y Z class. I can tell because you're doing it like they do. Oh, yeah, right. And so I'm not trying to make my students like me. I'm trying to make them the best them that they can be. And it's also been like a shift in my, in my 
as a teacher, releasing my own ego in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that I've done that is in my mind, I've made a shift from I'm not out of the convincing business and I'm in the sharing business. I'm not trying to convince you that my way is right. I'm just sharing what I know. Right. And so I don't really have, if you choose to not listen, if you choose to do something else, or if you choose to go to another school, that is 100% fine with me. If you want to hear what I have to say, you want to try it on for size. I think that's here. I'm happy to share everything I know, you know, but I'm not trying to convince you of anything anymore. <laughs> like when I was younger, I was much more like, come on, this is the only way or whatever. You know, <laughs> And you sort of have to work through that because you, you have to have a belief in what you're teaching you know, and, and belief in what you're sort of communicating to people, but it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to involve your ego. You can let go of that. Cause if someone's like, well, it's, this sort of goes back to another thing you were talking about earlier of like not knowing it's okay to not know something as a teacher. When I taught uh, in, in improv, it, a lot of times people ask me a question. It's a really specific or technical question. And I'm totally fine to say, you know what? Let me think about that for a second. I'm, I don't really have an opinion about that or a thought about it. Let me think about it. And if I have something, I'll, I'll share it with you. Or like when I was teaching, I was taught a long time for the SATs and the LSATs and standardized tests and stuff like that here in, in America. And, um, and there's plenty of times people would ask me a question, especially like a really intricate math question, like one of the hardest math questions on the SAT. And I'd be like, you know what? I'm not totally sure. Let me, let me talk to some people that are better at math than me and I'll bring you back an answer next, next class. You yeah. Know? But I think that's, I think that's, I think that builds confidence that people believe they're have more confidence in you that you're, that you're okay to say, I don't know. Right. You're not, you're not going to, to bullshit them and, and you're right. actually there to, to serve them better. And I think that it's one thing to be the kind of instructor who has the knowledge and says the right things and is able to give you the, the, the good answers all the time or correct answers. But a level above that is actually a teacher who's able to ask you good questions because it's each of us who's going to make the, the synthesis in their own mind to create understanding. It's impossible to just transmit an understanding from one mind to the other. I have to be illuminating by questions, I think, different parts that I think that are right now on the frontier of this idea they're building. So the person themselves, uh, the person himself or herself is going to actually build the idea and um, into an understanding, right? That eventually it kind of just falls into place. And now you have this, it's not anymore these very many different pieces but a, but a cohesive um graspable idea yeah i think improv is a, is a real extreme case of that because it's like it is so experiential and you're not doing the same you're never going to do the same scene twice probably right so it's not like okay just go back and do it this way now or just go back and do it this way now right it's like we were as an improv teacher for example i'm constantly abstracting what is the teachable moment from this what is the underlying principle of why this scene succeeded or struggled what is that underlying principle that tool that you can use in the future to make a hundred other scenes right because it's not like right or wrong it's not like oh that's yes that's it that's correct do that same scene again no, it's like, what, what were the dynamics that made that scene work? 
you know? And so we're always trying to do that. And sort of our whole conversation in a way has been about this idea of, of dialogue or dialectic with the students that I, when I'm at my best as a teacher, I am in dialogue with my students. I'm not just communicating one way. I'm like, what do you think? How did that scene feel? Okay. Why do you think it felt that way? All right. Well, yeah. So we did this earlier. Do you think that has to do with it? Right. And you're sort of like trying to discover along with them. When I, when I'm not at my best, when I'm uh, not at my best, let's say, I, I'm just doing it the way I've done it before. I'm just by rote almost. I've taught the same thing a thousand, thousand times, a thousand, mm-hmm. thousand times, right? So you gotta, I've always uh, tried to, when I'm teaching, really key into what is this class? Well, who are these people? What is this scene? What is that person? And really sort of, keep learning every time. If I'm not learning in the class, then I'm not at my best as a teacher, right? Because I'm just, just like a, a record, just saying these things, right? Exactly. But I've got to, and, and, and improv, since it's so experiential, I've got to be really communicating the lesson to them in a way that is applicable to the scene they just did, to the kind of scenes they want to do in the spectrum of their work overall through, through the whole class. Like, you know, that's where, that's where we've got that's that's the golden zone for me that's where i want to be yeah i love it because it really um takes me to the notion of of abstraction because you see all these instances of scenes and like you say they're never going to be replicated uh you have to abstract things that are uh that are present in all of them that are more stable that are going to carry into the next scene and uh, this is this is a very important skill in life because if we were to pay attention to all the kind of transient um, sensations that come in front of us, we would be very confused. But thankfully, we have the capability to um, not describe every chair by the way they look when we encounter them. We have the concept of chair, right? And we see many sure. instances of that. Um, yeah, so what, what would be... Um, a kind of um, abstraction in in improv that actually carries from a scene to another scene. Great. So let's say we're watching a scene and it's two people, very simple. It's a husband and a wife, let's say, and they're painting a nursery because they're about to have a child, right? That's like the setup. And they do this scene and it just doesn't catch on. They don't really connect and they're struggling the, the whole time, right? So at the end, I might say, How'd that scene feel? They're like, oh, it was really hard. I just really had a hard time with the scene. Okay, why do you think you had a hard time? Well, I just didn't know kind of what to say next. And I was like, well, were you listening to your wife? What did she say? And then sometimes they'll say, you know what? I don't even know. Okay, great. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that means that maybe, maybe we need to listen more, listen harder, more actively. And then you always have something to say. Because back to our earlier lesson, I always have something to say if I just start with what you just said right? She says, I'm really nervous about having this baby. And I say, honey, you shouldn't be nervous. You're going to be a great mom. I love you. I love you too. Right. And they're just responding to each other. Like human beings do. That's the hard part. It's like, when we get up on stage, we suddenly operate on this other physics, like away from how human beings are, but we have conversations all day responding to people by listening to what they're saying and then saying something back. Right. (laughs) Hopefully. All right. Better conversations. Um, so, so that's, so that's a lesson I can say, well, you don't remember what she said. So you felt dried up because you were trying to invent, invent, invent throughout the whole scene. 
rather than respond. So next time, think about, let's try to really listen to what your partner's saying and play off of that, right? And then maybe the, maybe the, the wife says, you know what, I, um, I really was just like, oh, gosh, I just felt like I was just trying to say this funny thing and that funny thing and nothing was getting any laughs. And then I might say, well, I don't think we need to try as hard. Just relax, just behave like you would in the scene and we have a saying that being funny is human enough or being human, sorry, being human is funny enough. Oh, right. Love it. So just, so don't really, don't really go for the joke. Don't really try to say one liners or whatever, just behave how you would. And that will sort of lead you down this road and you just keep heightening that organic idea. And, uh, and then let's try that in the next scene. Right. But it's yeah. just like, or someone says, oh, this scene really worked. Yeah, it did. It really worked. What do you think? What do you think? Why was it so easy for you? Well, I just felt like we were really connected. Yeah. You were listening to each other. You were giving out information about each other. And I felt like we really took our time. Yes. you really, you slowed down. You let the moments happen. Right. These are all transferable things to the next scene and the next scene and the next. Scene. Yeah, no, I absolutely love it. And it really connects with, um, a recent pet peeve of mine, which is to rant against optimization, right? Because this is essentially what gets you stuck when you're in the moment and you need to, and you need to um, just do the, just do the, the thing that's good enough, right? To carry, carry the thing going forward. Instead, you can sort of like, oh my God, how do I deliver the good, the goods right this moment? How am I going to say the absolute out of the, very many options that we have as human beings to speak. I could say literally anything now, and I'm stuck about saying the funniest thing, you know? And of course, we all uh, do that in the sense that we have this encounter with somebody and it ends. And then on the way home, we're like, oh, if I could have just said this, this would have planted him right there, right? Right, um, for sure. And, and this is that, uh, but in real time, this, uh, this is actually uh, a recipe for getting us stuck and not moving us forward anyway. And I love that you say, you know, uh, being a human is, is necessarily funny. At some point, the, the ridiculousness and the absurdity of life is going to reveal itself to you in such an obvious way that just your natural um, response to that is going to be hilarious. Yeah, and because people recognize it, they'll they'll recognize that real thing. You say this genuine line because you're being genuine, and people are like, oh my god, I whisper, that's how we are at home. And I talk to my wife, I said, that's us, that's us. You know what I'm saying? And you recognize that commonality between you and those characters, or they sort of somehow are speaking to the bigger human condition. You know, and that's what's really so interesting and fascinating is like people bringing their different perspectives. You get to hear like you know, people's point of view comes out in their comedy, in their work. You see like, oh, you think this about the world. You think that about the world. That's really interesting, you know? And that idea of perfection or the funniest thing or trying to be funny or the best thing, that's just like, that's, you know, that's fear. And, and that it leads to being like paralyzed, you know? Because exactly. if you're trying, always trying to do, I'm only going to do the best or I'm going to do nothing. That's sort of like the trap of perfectionism, right? Right. It's either the best or it's nothing. Well, that's not true. There's a, a bunch of gradations in there. Like, it's that's good. That's really good. That's really, really good. Or that's good. That's okay. That's not so great. Oh, this is just an experiment. I didn't, I learned something from it, but it's not something I would ever show to people or whatever, but that's okay, you know? Right. And is the, 
Is there a way to set a, a general direction? Is it just the interaction that makes people realize which way the whole kind of thing, the, the long-term trajectory of a scene is, is going towards? Or is it set at the beginning? Um, yeah, how do people know kind of, because you might want to, you might want to finish on some crescendo where it is ridiculous, right? So uh, do both people kind of steer it uh, carefully into that area or? That's a great question. There's actually a couple questions in there. The first one is like, we don't know necessarily where it's going. We're discovering it mm -hmm. along with the audience. That's what makes it so exciting is that, um, is that we're sort of discovering along with them and they're watching us discover it, right? It's like if you... You know, have you ever sort of like uh, you want to see a basketball game or a football game or whatever, and you're watching it live, and you're like, oh, wow, that's exciting. Versus when someone's like, oh, uh, these two teams played and this team won and the score was this. Let's watch the game. You're like, well, I already know where it's going. That's not the it's not quite as exciting because <laughs> yeah. I know the final result. Right. So this is when it's in the moment and it's happening. It's very. Oh, my gosh, this is so exciting. I'm watching the whole thing on unfold before me right that's what's really exciting exciting for the players and exciting for the audience right and there's we always try to strive towards this idea of being in the moment being in the moment right so like what sometimes players try to write ahead and they'll sort of like write a line and like write kind of where they think the scene's going and then they'll try to do that right and you can tell the difference there's like a different sort of energy when someone's like trying to play like one second back from the moment right so we try to say in the moment I'm really listening to you. I'm really responding to you in real time. And that's what I'm thinking about, right? And that, and that leads to it. And in terms of like, where does the scene go or how does the scene end? In general, in this style of improv, we don't think about the ending. We think about just playing the scene and then our, the rest of our ensemble, let's say, they'll edit the scene when they think it's done, right? And then that moves on to the next scene, mm. right? So I'm not thinking about ending it. But how do we get to that moment that says that says to the our, our fellow players that says, hey, this is the end, edit the scene, is we respond to each other. We keep doubling down on what we're doing. So like if, if uh, in the, let's say in the scene of the, I'm just making this up as I go, obviously, but in the scene of the husband and wife painting the, painting the nursery, right? Maybe he's like, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be, uh, I think I'm going to be a bad dad. And she's like, no, you're going to be a great dad. And he's like, she's like, I'm nervous about being a bad mom. He's like, no, you're going to be a great mom. I'm like, I don't know. I think it's me. I think it's me. I'm not really going to let this kid down. No way. If anyone's letting this kid down, it's me. I'm letting the kid down. Right. They just started down this road and now they're both getting more and more nervous. And then it's like, and then it just ends up with them like on the floor crying. Cause like, Oh, we're going to be, we're our kids going to be terrible because we're terrible parents. But it's just like heading down that same road and doubling down on what they're doing more and more and more until it gets to this absurd area. And then, you know, this sort of heightened moment mm. where it can't happen anymore. And then you, and then you need to cut it and give it a break. And then we can come back to it later. Right now we know they're the two nervous parents. That's interesting. We'll see them again later, maybe. And they'll be like buying a stroller. They're like, I don't know, is this stroller good? What if the stroller gets away from you? And then we see that and we see, oh gosh, this is what we know about them. Right. And we're like, and as the audience, we're like, uh oh, here come the nervous parents. And we can sort of have that gift of expectation because we know a little something about how they work, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, what about in terms of, of being um, a teacher? I'd like to hear from you what, what it's like for you to be in that, from the first person perspective, to be 
in the in the good flow in in the in the flow state um and and maybe what you're hearing from from students as well as i'm sure that this is partly what keeps you going in that profession because there is you know after you've experienced something and again it's not just sharing things that you know but it's also sharing things you've experienced because you want people sure. to to go down the same road of feeling this um ecstasy of actually being almost uh, taken by something bigger than you when you're in this flow um yeah what what could you how would you explain it to to outsiders the kind of experience that you can feel when uh things go very well in terms of of a scene great um i think that sort of if I'm talking to my students and I'm saying like, uh, sometimes I'll tell my students this idea. I'll say, you know, the biggest difference, like after, at the end of level one, eight weeks, we've been together and teaching them the basics. They have a pretty firm grasp on the basics at the end of level one, let's say. Right. And I'll we'll be talking on the last day and I'll say, you know what? The biggest thing that separates you as an improviser from me as an improviser now is really just experience, right? Experience because I've done a thousand scenes. 10,000 scenes, maybe thousands upon thousands of scenes. And you've done maybe hundreds of scenes, maybe not even that many, right? Because they're just starting off. So the part, one of the things that, that separates us is that just experience. And also that, and so, and that translates into what I call the fraction of life theory, the fraction of life theory, which is when you've done two shows and one's good and one's bad, half of the shows you've ever done are bad. That's hard. It hits you harder uh -huh. when you're like me and you've done a hundred thousand shows. Right. And let's say, I don't know, 20,000 of them were bad. 80,000 of them were good. When you have a bad show, you're like, eh, I still have these 80,000 good shows. You know what I'm saying? Your, your experience is like so much broader. And I think about my kids with this is like an adult can wait for an hour much easier than a kid because an hour is a smaller fraction of my life than it is for a kid, right? And so it matters less in a sense, right? It just doesn't throw me off base as much. There's less pressure for me, right? And also when you have some experience and you go on stage, you expect it to go well. You expect it to go well. And so you have this positive energy going into it and my students are like i don't know and maybe i hope this goes well i don't i'm just trying to survive this scene and get off stage without, without looking like a, an idiot <laughs> whatever you know all these things just like let it go let it go just be in the moment with your partner that's one of the things if there's one sort of like big takeaway of the whole thing what i really love about improv is that is that it it's sort of like sort of like a good spiritual practice it pushes you into the moment when you're doing it right you're in the moment you're in the flow. It's effortless. You're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about the future. You're just engaging with this person in this moment, in this audience, in this. One of the things that makes improv great is that it is so transient. It's just this moment in time, right? And you can try to tell it to someone, but it's like telling someone your dream. It's never as interesting to them, you know? <laughs> but it's like when you're in it and you're in that moment, it's just like you're flying. You're effortless. You're just sort of like responding to that other person back and forth. And you're really engaged with what's happening. And you kind of, you know, the next thing to do and you're, and you're fearless. You're not afraid to give it a try. You know, I think those, that's what I love about it. when I'm improvising. I feel like sometimes when I'm at my highest self, the way I would, you know, aspire to be 24 seven, I would love to be in that zone 24 seven, you know, of that fearless, powerful, confident, loving, 
giving, supportive place. You know, it's all the best things. It's all the best things. I think improv when done right is all the best things about being human. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I, I can only wonder why, you know, we hear so much of the, from, from the mindfulness um, field, you hear, obviously, we've been hearing it for decades, you know, be in the moment, live in the moment. But it's interesting because improv is about, it's, it's a fast-paced thing. You're, you're there. It's happening um, and it seems to me to be much more effective than kind of repeating some sort of mantra or theoretically thinking about being in the moment, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's actually happening. And I just wonder why, um, why it is so that, what, what does it say about us as a society that we recognize that we need to be in a moment, but instead of doing improv, we sit quietly in a room or something like that. It's, right. It's really interesting right. now that you're saying. I don't it. know. I'm a I'm a big fan of the what I call the spokes of the wheel theory of truth. Right, the truth is in the middle. There's a bunch of spokes all pointing at all different ways to come to that to yeah. come to that thing. For me, it was improv. Like that's how I sort of touch that that higher power. And I also think for me, you know, I've done meditation as well. And for me, it's it's and this is maybe a flaw of my own practice, but it's easier for me to do something than to not do something right? Sitting is, is not doing, is releasing all of that and not doing, right? But when I can do something and I'm engaged with my partner and it's there in the moment, it's like has a more sort of visceral um, feeling that that works for me. That works for me a ton, you know? And I think that, um, yeah, I think it has its own complications for sure, because when you're doing improv, sometimes you're in front of an audience and that is an ego trigger to the millionth power, you know what I'm saying? Mm. So we need to separate ourselves away from the result and really marry ourselves to the process. And when we do that, that's when we are our most successful, right? Where I'm process oriented, not result oriented. I'm not trying, I'm not lusting after those laughs or lusting after that big applause from the audience. I'm really faithful to the work and I'm really faithful to you know, the values that we say that we believe in and improv, you know, making my partner look good, being in the moment, like all these simple things. It's easier for me to steer towards those things than when I'm meditating, steer away from thoughts or, or feelings or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? It's easy for me to steer towards than away. Yeah. Yeah. And, you Personally. know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of meditation. I think it's a great way to, to regulate your own, uh, your internal emotions mind and and prime you get to get you to a position where you're good to go when it comes to acting on the outside where improv or actual living is is the place where you get to create something that's outside yourself to harmonize something that's bigger than yourself and i also really like the idea that because it's improv and it's um non-replicable you do have the, you know, 20%, 15%, whatever of, of things where th when things bomb, right? And it, and it doesn't work. And that seems much healthier than being an actor who is maybe surrounded by a whole staff who did an amazing job writing a part. And he's the face of all of this. And, and he's as good as the staff because he fits perfectly within this whole system. But... Um, he gets basically on, on some machine, like a well-oiled machine that works so well and the responses from the crowd is amazing, 
right? And at least for the while that he's doing that show, uh, nothing is going to curb his his um, ego in, inflation, right? Because right. he's the face of this, and there is no fifteen percent that's that's bad that keeps him um, humble. Right. And I'll, I think that 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 can definitely be true. And I think that actors who are like in a long term show, like on Broadway or whatever, they're doing the same part for years or months or whatever. I think one of the big struggles for for those actors is to keep it fresh, to keep it interesting, to keep discovering night after night. Improv has that going for it. It is only discovery yeah. night after night. You know what I'm saying? And those failures are important because one of the things that a failure does is that it shows us if I fail, I'm not going to die. And then you're like, oh, okay. So I could take a bigger swing because even if I fail, I'm not going to die. There's no, it's okay. You know, many, some people believe that all of our fears boil down to the fear of death, right? And so the, you're, you're confronting that fear on a real minor scale. I failed in front of an audience. They all, oh my gosh, nobody laughed or the whole show. But you know what? I'm not dead. I didn't die. The audience didn't storm the stage with knives and torches. They just walked out like, eh, whatever, you know? And you feel like, okay, I didn't die. And it, that gives you a certain confidence. It's really weird. It's a weird thing, but it's, you know, you try to learn a lesson and then you do something new the next time, but. You know, like, okay, I didn't die. I love you it. Know? So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love it. And I think it's, it's, it's just about time to wrap things up anyway. And I love finishing on that note. You know, try things. You won't die. Um, yeah, so I'd love for you, Paul, to, um, to tell uh, listeners uh, where they can find you, your work, what you do, where you... Um, yeah, basically everything about you. So. Sure. Uh, my name is Paul Valencourt. I am an improv teacher and obviously improv enthusiast. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at P as in Paul, V as in Valencourt, PV Improv on YouTube. Um, also, I'm on Instagram at What's Up with PV. What's Up with PV on Instagram. And then also, I wrote a book about improv called The Triangle of the Scene. And that is um, uh, The Triangle of the Scene available on uh, Amazon. Wonderful. Um, so thank you very, very much for coming on the show. And as soon as I'm going to uh, pause the recording or stop it, I'm going to inquire about how about how I'm going to start improv. So. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. And I'll tell you everything you need about improv uh, anytime <laughs> you want. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.